Dear Lord, please be with us as we open your word. Please make sure that that what I speak are not my words, they're your words. And then also make sure that what we hear is not my voice, but your voice as we begin today. In thy name, amen. Well, I have to be honest with you, I am very excited about speaking today. I feel like, um, you know, in Samaria when <clears throat> they sieged uh, Israel and uh, they couldn't find any food and, and the lepers went out and they found, the four lepers went out. I feel like I'm one of the four lepers. Uh, I, I've gone into um, to the enemy's camp and I found gold and food and I can't just enjoy it by myself, right? Some evil is going to happen if I just sit on this. So I feel compelled to kind of show you what I found. Um, so about, about two or three weeks ago, um, my wife and I went on a, on a cruise to Alaska. An amazing thing if you ever get a chance to do it. One of the stops was this place called Skagway. Has anyone gone to Skagway before? It's, it's a beautiful place. It really went into a boom town in 1898 when they discovered gold up in Canada. And uh, what happened, as you can see here on the map, is just about 100,000 people rushed up from the United States and Canada to go for this gold. And for those that didn't have a lot of means, they went to Skagway because that was kind of the way that they got up to where they needed to go. They got to Skagway, and you know that little panhandle there in Alaska? Well, the Canadians were just off maybe about 50 or 60 miles, and they would not allow anybody into Canada unless they had provisions for one year. So that's about 2,000 pounds. They had to carry, every person to get in there for the gold rush had to carry 2,000 pounds of supplies to get where they wanted to go. So that meant they had to carry 50 pounds back and forth, back and forth, until they moved it a certain distance, and then they'd have to move again. And you can kind of see here on the map that they had to get to a place called Dawson, which is where there was a big lake, and in the wintertime it froze, of course, but in the, in the spring it thawed out. And then they had to build boats. After going hundreds of miles, they had to actually build a boat on Dawson's Lake, and then travel an additional 500 miles down the river to get to where the gold was. That's the only way they could do it. People sold everything. People risked lives. Why? For gold. So here's a picture up in Skagway of these people carrying this stuff up these huge Alaskan mountains and into Canada. Here they are up in Dawson's Lake building these boats. You know, when the, when the lake thawed, I'm sort of cutting out a little bit, but when the lake thawed, 8,000 boats were put on that river to go down. That's how many people were there. Within the first mile, 2,000 of those boats had already sunk. That, they, were, they were completely ill-prepared, completely ill-prepared for it. As it turns out, I found out, doing some research, that my great-great-grandfather was actually one of those people. And fortunately, he was a ship captain, so he was a little bit more experienced, and he made it down to... Fairbanks, where he did some uh, mining at the turn of the century. And it was all for this, gold. People were willing to sacrifice anything they could for gold. Let's turn to the spirit of prophecy. Education, 189. The study of the Bible demands our most diligent effort and the persevering thought. As the miner digs for the golden treasure in the earth, so earnestly, persistently must we seek for the treasure of God's word. By many, man's wisdom, I'm going to talk, try to set this tone here for the talk. By many, man's wisdom is thought to be higher than the wisdom of the divine teacher, and God's lesson book is looked upon as old-fashioned, stale, and uninteresting. But by those who have been vivified by the Holy Spirit, it is not so regarded. They see the priceless treasure and would sell all to buy the field that contains it. Instead of books containing the suppositions of repeatedly great authors... They choose the word of him who is the greatest author and the greatest teacher the word has ever known, who gave his life for us, that through him we might have everlasting life. Christ is the truth. His words are truth. And keep this in your mind. They have a deeper significance than appears on the surface. All the sayings of Christ have a value beyond their unpretending appearance. Minds that are quickened by the Holy Spirit will discern the value of these sayings. They will discern the precious gems of truth, though they may be buried treasure. The Bible contains all the principles that men need to understand in order to be fitted either for this life or for the life to come. And these principles may be understood by all. This is Education 123. 
No one with a spirit to appreciate its teaching can read a single passage from the Bible without gaining from it some helpful thought. But the most valuable teaching of the Bible is not to be gained by occasional or disconnected study. Its great system of truth is not so presented as to be discerned by the hasty or careless reader. Many of its treasures lie far beneath the surface and can only be obtained by diligent research and continuous effort. The truths that go to make up the great whole must be searched out and gathered up here a little, there a little, Isaiah 28.10. When thus searched out and brought together, they will be found to be perfectly fitted one to another. Each gospel is a supplement to the others, every prophecy and explanation of another, every development of some other truth. The types of the Jewish economy are made plain by the gospel. Every principle in the word of God has its place, every fact its bearing, the complete structure in design and execution bears testimony to the author. Such a structure, no mind, but that of the infinite conceiver fashion. Education 123. God made the human body. God made the Bible. Is the Bible not a living word? Right? I have spent most of my academic career and medical career studying the human body. And I'm telling you, we haven't even scratched the surface. Is it possible that that may be the same with the Bible as well? Aren't we going to study it for eternity? Okay. I'm setting you up here, okay? We're going someplace with this. We must think not well. We have all the truth. We understand the main pillars of our faith, and we may rest on this knowledge. The truth is an ever-advancing truth, and we must walk in the increasing light. This is Councils to Writers and Editors, page 33 and 34. New light will ever be revealed on the divine word to him who is in living connection with the son of righteousness. Let no one come to the conclusion that there is no more truth to be revealed. Think about that. The diligent, prayerful seeker of truth will find precious rays of light yet to shine forth from the sacred word. Many gems are yet scattered that are to be gathered together to become the, rem the property of the remnant people. Okay? You know, when my great-great-grandfather went up to Fairbanks, I'm sure by the time he got there, most of the good places were already staked out. And in fact, the sad part is the majority of the 100,000 people that went up to Fairbanks, they didn't get gold. It was already staked out. They were working for other people getting the gold. That's not the case with this gold mine. Let none think that there is no more knowledge for them to gain. The depth of human intellect may be measured. The works of human authors may be mastered. But the highest, deepest, broadest flight of the imagination cannot find out God. There is an infinity beyond all that we can comprehend. We have seen only the glimmering of divine glory and of the infinitude of knowledge and wisdom. We have, as it were, been working on the surface of the mind. When rich gold ore is beneath the surface to reward the one who will dig for it. I love this part. The shaft must be sunk deeper and yet deeper in the mind, and the result will be glorious treasure. Through a correct faith, divine knowledge will become human knowledge. That's uh, Christ's Object Lessons, page 113. I'm getting here to the end here. Let all see, I want, I want to make sure that you guys know where I'm going with this. Let all seek to comprehend to the full extent of their powers the meaning of the word of God. A mere superficial reading of the inspired word will be of little advantage. For every statement, every statement made in the sacred pages requires thoughtful contemplation. It is true that some passages do not require as earnest concentration as do others, for their meaning is more evident. But... The student of the word of God should seek to understand the bearing of one passage upon another until the chain of truth is revealed in his vision. As veins of precious ore are hidden beneath the surface of the earth, so spiritual riches are concealed in the passages of Holy Writ. And it requires mental effort and prayerful attention to discover the hidden meaning of the word of God. Let every student who values the heavenly treasure put to the stretch his mental and spiritual powers and sink the shaft deep into the mind of truth that he may obtain <clears throat> the celestial gold, that wisdom which will make him wise unto salvation. However, this is not open for private interpretation. Any gold that is mined from the word of God must fit 
Isaiah 8.20. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So, I have dug deep. For the last two or three years, the book of Esther has just captivated me. And I think my kids who are here today can tell us, oh, Daddy, not Esther again. <laughs> but I want to sink the mine shaft deep, and I want to show you what I found, because what I have found is beyond words. Remember that the book of Esther almost didn't even make it into the Bible. The Essenes who wrote the, the Bible, who copied it, copied the entire Old Testament, except the book of Esther. Martin Luther thought it should have been excluded from the canon. John Calvin had nothing to say about it in the institution of the Christian religion books that he wrote. Okay? It is, why is it here today? It's basically a Hollywood script. The word of God isn't even mentioned in it. But yet, it's in our Bible. I think after today, you'll see why. So it was written about 450 years ago. For those of you who don't know the timing of it, this is when the Israelites were, or the Hebrews, or the Jews were in Persia under captivity. However, Cyrus had released them when he conquered Babylon, but they still stayed in Persia. Xerxes was the king of uh, Persia at the time in 486. This is still 29 years before 50, 457 BC, which we all know starts the 70-week prophecy and the 2300-day prophecy. There's still about a million Jews living in Persia, and the setting of this story takes place in the city of Shushan. Okay? So, Esther begins with, let's just go right through quickly, just a whole brief synopsis. There's a 180-day feast, public wine feast of seven days in a garden. Queen Vashti refuses and is insubordinate. Vashti is deposed. There's a search for a new queen. Esther is taken to the palace and made queen. Mordecai saves the king's life from Bigthon and Teresh. Haman is then promoted. Haman resents Mordecai and wants to take revenge on the, on the Jews. Haman's decree to exterminate the Jews on the 13th day of the first month to be executed on the 13th day of the 12th month. That'll come up again. Esther, Esther then realizes that her people are going to be exterminated. Mordecai entreats her to go to the king. The Jews fast. Mordecai appeals to Esther. Esther accepts the challenge. Esther goes before the king and actually lives. Then there's a banquet that occurs. Haman's plot to hang Mordecai is hatched. The king is reminded of Mordecai's service. Haman is compelled to honor Mordecai. Remember, he puts the king's robe on him, and he marches through the streets of Shushan on a horse's back. There's the second night of the banquet. Esther then finally accuses Haman before the king. Haman is executed on his own gallows. Then Mordecai takes over the place of Haman. He then gets the king's ring, writes a new law that allows the Jews to stand in place. Then you have the proclamation of the Feast of Purim. Mordecai made prime minister of Persia. Okay. That's the story of Esther. What do, we, what do we need to do with the shaft? Dig deeper. Dig deeper. This is from Prophets and Kings, page 602. You know, you can, by the way, just saying, what was the spirit that inspired the writers of the Bible? It was the Holy Spirit. Do we believe that it's the same spirit that inspired the writings of Ellen White? Can we sink the shaft deeper with Ellen White too? I think we can. Listen to what she says here on page 602. This is really interesting. The events that followed, she's talking about what happened in Esther. In rapid succession, the appearance of Esther before the king, the marked favor shown her, the banquets of the king and the queen with Haman as the only guest, the troubled sleep of the king, the public honor shown Mordecai, and the humiliation and the fall of Haman upon the discovery of his wicked plot, all these are parts of a familiar story. Which story is she talking about? A lot of things in the Bible have a dual meaning. Right? Pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath or in the winter. That had to do with the Jews in 70 AD, but does it also have an application for us? Which familiar story is she talking about? Let's see if we can figure that out. Let's get started, okay? So, let's dig deeper. King of Persia, Ahasuerus, is the king of kings. Other kings pay taxes to him. He was the third Persian king, fourth, right? Daniel, uh, Daniel 11, verse 2, he was the most powerful of the kings. He inherited the title from his father of king of Babylon. He wanted nothing to do with it. He went up and destroyed the city of Babylon. So he is the king over the largest empire the world has ever seen. And it just so happens that there's a second in command who becomes insubordinate to that king. There's an investigation that occurs at a seven-day feast, and they find out that this person needs to be excluded from the kingdom 
for the betterment of all the people that are living in the kingdom. Does that story sound familiar to you? Do you see where I'm going with this? What happens right after this is the king, we know from history, goes to war with the Greeks. This is the most famous battle that ever occurred in European history. It's the Battle of Thermopylae. Literally, it means the Battle of the Hot Gates. Have you heard of that? There was 300 Spartans. You know what? I know of a story that's very similar because God sat on his throne and ruled over the universe. The second in command of that kingdom was insubordinate. His downfall was associated with the creation of man, which occurred during a seven-day period, a wine feast. Lucifer had free will to choose which doctrines he would follow, just like the seven-day wine feast had a choice about what wine you could drink if you wanted to in diverse vessels. There was an investigation in the kingly courts to decide what should be done with Lucifer, and he was eventually deposed and expelled out of heaven for the betterment of those remaining as he would have been a bad influence. And you know what happened after that? War in heaven. Let's back up. This seven-day wine feast, there's a very specific term that's used there. It's called a mishta. That's the Jewish word for it. It's used only a few times in the Bible, maybe about 20 times in the Old Testament. Every single time it is used, it denotes that there is going to be a judgment that follows the, the feast. Let me give you some examples where it was used. When Lot entertained two angels, that was at a mishta, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. When Isaac was weaned from Sarah, and Abraham threw a mishta, Hagar was deposed. When Pharaoh had a birthday party, a mishta, the baker was executed, the butler was elevated. Samson had a mishta for his wife and then made a riddle about the lion and the honey. That was a mishta. What happened afterwards to the 30 guys that lost their clothes and lives, right? Nabal and Abigail and David, that was at a mishta. Daniel and his three friends eating at the king's table, that was a mishta. Then judgment occurred. The Last Supper has the same kind of connotation, right? They're eating at a supper, and what happens to Judas? Then there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the bottom line is, whenever we see mishta, what do we hear? Judgment. Let's do it again. Whenever we hear mishta, we go with? Judgment. Exactly. Think about that. So banquet equals judgment. So what comes next? Well, it's this battle. It's this war. In 480 BC, which is right after we know exactly when this was because we know what year of Xerxes it was that this happened. It was in the third year that they deposed it. We know that exactly right after that, Xerxes goes to battle with the Greeks and a man named Leonidas who leads the Spartans against them. It's a very small fighting force. The king takes his massive army and he goes to war at the Battle of Thermopylae, which, by the way, they thought was the entrance to the gates of hell. Okay, Hades. So Xerxes leads 60,000 troops, it's found, and he loses about a third. And by the way, they're known as the immortals. Okay? And Leonidas is offered to be given king of Greece. He refuses it and says, I would rather die than serve you. Does that sound familiar? Leonidas, by the way, means lion as in seeking whom he may devour. So there was also war in heaven. A third of the angels who were formerly immortal were lost to the other side. God won the battle, but suffered a lot of losses. So did Xerxes. Lucifer was offered forgiveness before the war started, but refused and was ready to fight. Read the story of redemption, page 15 to 18. Lucifer is noted as a lion seeking whom he may devour. And here's a statue at the very spot of the Battle of Thermopylae in Eastern Europe, which shows a statue of Leonidas, and it says in Greek underneath, come and take it. Literally, Xerxes says, put your weapons down, and he, in defiance, Leonidas says, come and take it. Okay? What comes next? You guys know the great controversy story, right? War in heaven, Lucifer is cast out. What happens next? You have to have a plan of salvation, right? Wasn't the plan of salvation figured out before man fell? Absolutely. So we have Esther happening next in the story of Esther, right? Esther grows up in obscurity. Esther hid her origins until the time was right. Esther was orphaned and raised by an adopted father. Esther was fully Jew and fully queen and was the only one able to intercede because of that quality. The Jewish Targum states that Esther was as beautiful as the morning star. Esther was visited every day by Mordecai. Esther was loved by the king more than all of the other women. Esther's appointment to the queenship was done in a high priest-like manner. She was separated from her 
adopted father. She went through purifications, and then she entered into the king's palace. Jesus grew up in obscurity. Jesus hid his origins until the time was right. Jesus was orphaned on this earth and raised by an adopted father. Jesus was fully man and fully divine, and, it was, the, and it was the only one able to intercede because of that quality. Jesus is the morning star. Jesus was trained every single day by the Holy Spirit. And of Jesus, the Heavenly Father said, Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus Christ is our high priest. So here we have, in Esther, we have, you guys should know what this is. This is the sanctuary, right? So in the outer chamber, we have the altar of sacrifice, which represents the crucifixion of Christ, right? The lamb that was slain since the foundation of the world. And then we have the laver, which is where purification occurs, but it also represents Christ dying and being buried in the tomb. And then after Christ rises from the dead, he then enters into the holy place, the heavenly holy place, and then finally in 1844 into the most holy place. Well, if you look at Esther, Esther goes, she, the guy who raises her at the, in, in the precincts of the temple is a guy by the name of Haggai, and that literally means groaning or separation. Was Christ not separated at the cross? And then what happens? She goes under purifications for six months. That's the labor. And only then does she enter the house of the king. And by the way, Christ, when Christ entered the holy place in 34 AD, he took with him what? What was the only thing he took with him into the holy place? His blood that he got back here at the altar of sacrifice, correct? Isn't that what the high priest does? It says in Esther that when Esther was asked to go into the king, she only took with her what Haggai had given her. Here it is, Esther 2.15. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all upon them that looked upon her. When Christ went into the, most, into the holy place in heaven, did he not find favor? What comes next? We have the plan of salvation now. We have the fall of man. So there's two people, interestingly, they're in very high positions in the court of the Persian king by the name of Bigthan and Teresh. Much trust was given to them, but yet they sought to kill the king. And it was found out by Mordecai. It was figured out, if you look in the Megillah, which is the Jewish literature, it was found out because one of them left their posts. That's what told it off. That's how Mordecai figured it out. One of them was not standing at their post. Okay? And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree and was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. By the way, Bigthon, if you look it up in the Hitchcock Dictionary, means in the press giving wine. Or in the out of pressure, you will get meat, food. Whereas Teresh means desire. Adam and Eve were given a special place in honor of kingdom of, of God. Adam and Eve raised their hand against the king of the universe when they decided to become insubordinate. It occurred because one of them left their posts. An investigation was conducted, and they were found guilty and were sentenced to death. In the day that thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. What, does Adam, what was Adam told in Genesis 3.19? In the sweat of thy face, thou shalt eat bread. And to Eve, in Genesis 3.16, thy desire shall be to thy husband. Okay? What happens after the... Great controversy now. What happens after the fall of Adam and Eve? We have the ascension of what type of religious system? A religious system that is loyal to God or a religious system that is not loyal to God? Not loyal to God. Question. Question. In the story of Esther, who is the one that told the king that Bigthan and Teresh were going to kill him? Mordecai figured it out. Then he told Esther and Esther told the king. Who should have been elevated at that point? Who should have gotten all of the reward? It should have been Mordecai, who was sitting at the king's gate. But this is not a story that is a normal story. This is a story about the great controversy. So what, what system of religion gets elevated after the fall of Adam and Eve? Babylon. 
So what do we see raising right next in the story? Haman. Haman represents Babylon. Haman is a religious power that likes to use civil authority to get his way. Okay? There's a picture of Mordecai not bowing down to Haman. So who is Haman? Haman's an interesting character. He is a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. Remember Samuel saying, what's this bleeding I hear in my ear? It's because they didn't kill him when they should have that we have Haman. By the way, King Saul is a descendant of which tribe? Benjamin. Mordecai is a descendant of which tribe? Benjamin. Okay? This is, you start looking at these things and you'll start to see a lot of connections. So here is Haman, and he realizes that Mordecai is not bowing down to him. So he goes to the king and he says, there are some in the kingdom that don't follow your laws. What are, where are we in the great controversy? Adam and Eve just sinned. Lucifer is going to the king and saying, are these the people that you're going to replace me with? Are these the people? Justice says that you ought to kill these people. Justice says that they ought to be destroyed. He demands worship, but he gets the king to issue a death decree to all Jews. He issues it on the 13th day of the first month to be executed on the 13th day of the 12th month. Listen to what Lucifer says to Christ. Prophets and Kings, page 588. Are these the people who are going to take my place in heaven and the place of the angels who united with me? They profess to obey the law of God. But have they kept its precepts? Have they not been lovers of self more than lovers of God? Have they not placed their own interests above his service? Have they not loved the things of the world? Look at their sins that have marked their lives. Behold their selfishness, their malice, their hatred of one another. Will God banish me and my angels from his presence and yet reward those that have been guilty of the same sins? O Lord, in justice, justice demands that sentence be pronounced against them. Does that sound like Haman? Absolutely. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people of all the provinces and thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay how much? 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring into the king's treasury. Let's back up. Haman is telling the king they need to be gone. They're not following your laws. You should not suffer them. That's the death decree of Adam and Eve. Do you see where I'm going with this? What's the price associated with the death decree? 10,000 talents of silver. Do you know that 10,000, the number 10,000 was the single biggest number in the Jewish numbering system? They could count higher, but it was the single biggest number. It's to show the huge amount. Okay, we're going to get back to this. So the death decree goes out, the letters and posts, everybody's going to die, young, old, little women, children, it doesn't matter. If you're not following the king, you're dead. And that is exactly the death decree that our parents, Adam and Eve, suffered when they sinned. So where are we? We've got the king of the universe, we've got Lucifer that just got deposed, we've got the plan of salvation, we have Adam and Eve, we have the execution of the sentence, what's the next step? We actually need the plan of salvation, okay? So the death decree is a typology of the death decree given to Adam and his offspring by God and accused of Lucifer. Number one, why? It is a law that cannot be changed. The law of the Persians cannot be changed. Can the law of God be changed? No. Young, old, male, and female are under its charge. It will wipe out all, and there is no hope without an intercessor. So watch this, okay? This is the digging deep. Okay. Esther, Haman's death decree goes out in 474 B.C. God saves Esther and the Jewish people, right? So how much do the Jews owe God but in money? 10,000 talents, okay? God says, you know what? I want you to rebuild. You're going to be my people. I want you to rebuild Jerusalem in 457 B.C., essentially forgiving them of that 10,000 talent debt because he wants them to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, reconcile for iniquity, confirm the covenant for a week. He starts that in 457 BC. Everyone clear on that? The same people, the descendants of those people at the very end 
take Christ and crucify him on the cross. And when Judas comes back to give them their 30 pieces of silver, will they accept repayment? They don't accept repayment. Right? This, is all, this is all basic truth. Christ still works with them for three and a half years. And finally, time runs out. 70 weeks are gone. Stephen is stoned. The 70 weeks are gone. And then in 70 AD, the Jews are turned over to the Roman tormentors, and, and Jerusalem is sieged and destroyed. Everyone clear on that? Let's look at Matthew 8.23. There's a king who's checking out all of his debts. There's some guy that owes him how much? 10,000 talents of silver. Isn't that amazing? It's the same number. This is how the Bible works. God puts little tags on things, say this is related to this because this is the same number as this. 10,000 talents of silver, this servant owes the king. He pleads, the debt's forgiven. Same servant now goes out to a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii or 100 pence, demands payment. Won't do it. King finds out and ends forgiveness and turns him over to the tormentors. Now, in Matthew 8.23, the first word in that verse is, therefore. Now, I'm not very good at English, but I know that therefore is a type of word that's called a conjunction, right? That means it's connecting the thought right before it. What was the thought right before it? Peter says, Christ, how often should I forgive my neighbor? Should I do it seven times? Because, you know, the rule is three. And what does Christ say to him? Not seven times, but... Wow. That's 70 weeks. That's 70 weeks. This is not, this is not just a parable. This is a prophecy. It's going to get even better. Okay? The 10,000 talents... Of silver? What was the date that Haman sold the Jews? It was the 13th day of the first month. What was the date that Judas sold Jesus? The 13th day of the first month. Now, when you look in the story, the Greek story, the Greek word, when the servant is bowing down to the king, the word there is a completely different Greek word. It means to worship, to bow down. When it gets to the point where the fellow servant is talking to the servant, it's to admonish, to encourage, to comfort. Now, do you see one problem with my analogy, with my parallelism? Dr. Schwelt, that's 30 pieces of silver. That's 100 denarii. Watch. Go to Wiki. <laughs> if you go to the very time that Christ gave this parable, right, which was between 14 AD and 37 AD, the amount of silver in one denarii was 3.9 grams. So 100 denarii is 390 grams of silver. If 30 pieces of silver is the same as the 390 grams of silver, how much would one piece of silver need to weigh? It's mathematics. It's 390 divided by 30, which is 13. So who was paying the 30 pieces of silver? Who was the one who had the money initially? It was the high priests. What was the money that the high priest dealt with? When all the people from all over the world came to the temple, they had to change their money into the Tyrian shekel. This was the, this was the denomination of money that had the highest silver content. Okay, And there's some problems with it, which we can talk about this afternoon at 4 o'clock, it had the face of Baal on it. So here we have a monetary system with a pagan god in the temple. Can you see some eschatological ramifications of that? We'll talk about that. So 
13 grams would have to be how much this piece of silver was. So let's go to March 19, 2008. Rare silver coin found in excavations in Jerusalem. This coming Tuesday, before reading the scroll of Esther, all devout Jews will contribute some money, the shekel, the half shekel, a rare ancient silver coin of the type used to pay the half shekel tax in ancient times was recently discovered in an archaeological excavation that is being conducted around the walls of Jerusalem. National Park near the city of David. It was in that time the main drainage channel of Jerusalem during the Second Temple period. The annual half shekel head tax was given in shekel and half shekel coins from the Tyre Mint, where they were struck from the year 125 before Christ until the outbreak of the Great Revolt in 66 CE. Are we in the right time period? Yes. At the time of the uprising, the tax was paid using Jerusalem Shechem, which were specifically minted for this purpose. The rabbinic sources say, silver mentioned in the Pentateuch is always Tyrian silver. What is Tyrian silver? It is a Jerusalemite. Many have interpreted this to mean that the only Tyrian shekels could be used to pay the half-shekel tax at the temple. Next line. The shekel that was found in the excavation weighs 13 grams. 30 pieces of silver is 100 denarii. This not only predicted when Christ would be crucified, but it predicted how much he would be crucified for. So let's go back to the statements that we had at the very beginning. Every fact has its bearing. Every word, its meaning. System of truth. You guys seen this? Now, what I'm saying is, is that the death decree of Haman represents... Adam and Eve's death decree, okay? But what I've just shown here is that that 10,000 is related to the 10,000 in Matthew 18. If I can find out what Ellen White has to say about the 10,000 in Matthew 18, because A equals B and B equals C, then maybe A equals C, okay? So let's go find out. So what I'm saying is that 10,000 talents represents Adam's death decree and the price that would never, we could never pay. It's the price of sin which justification removes and forgives all sin. Okay, let's go to Christ's object lessons, 244. This is Ellen White. The pardon granted by this king represents a divine forgiveness of all sin. Christ is represented by the king who moved with compassion, forgave the debt of the servant. Man was under the condemnation of the broken law. He could not save himself, and for this reason, Christ came to the world. Clothed in his divinity with humanity, he gave his life. The just for the unjust, he gave himself for our sins, and to every soul he freely offers blood-bought pardon. Christ Object Lessons 244. You guys seen this? Okay. What comes next? So we have a death decree. We have a problem. Humanity is headed for death. We now need to execute the plan of salvation. That involves Esther. I love this slide because it shows Christ ministering in the most holy place between two angels, and there just so happens to be a painting of Esther going before the king, being held up by two supporters, because this is exactly what it is. Okay, in the book of Esther, check this out. This is amazing. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know. This is Esther talking to Mordecai. Mordecai saying, look, you need to go to the king. You need to do something. She's like, wait, whoa, whoa. Let me explain to you how the court works. If, you, if any man or woman goes into the inner court of the king who is not called, there is one law for him to be put to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come unto the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape the king's house more than all the other Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall there be enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou art thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether or not thou come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return to Mordecai and says, Look, go gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan. Fast for me, for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also, my maidens, will fast likewise, and so I will go unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Let me unpack that for you. How long was Jesus Christ in human form on this earth before he was baptized, separated from his father? 30 years. 
If he had committed one sin in that 30-year period and had appeared in the inner chamber of the court in heaven after his crucifixion, would he live? He would not. Could it be that the same feelings that Esther was having are an insight into what the feelings of Christ were about what he had to go through? Don't you understand, Mordecai, that if I, I, have not, I have not been in the presence of the king for 30 days. I don't know how he feels about me. I don't know if he will have favor with me. If I go into this court, let me explain to you why they did this. The king sat in his throne room, and there was a door that was open, huge door. Then there was another huge inner court. The king could see through the door. People had to appear over here because they had a problem with assassinations back then. People would come and assassinate the king. So if you stood in the court and he didn't call you, but he saw you, if he says, I don't know what you're doing here, and I don't, the, the default was, you're dead. Okay? So Esther appears to the court. If she's not accepted, she's dead. This happens the day after the death decree. So in other words, on Nisan 14, which is the day after Nisan 13, Esther comes to the realization that she is ready to die to save her people. Jesus Christ, after being, after being away from his father for 30 years on Nisan 14, comes to the realization that he will die for his people. This is what I was talking about. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on, are you guys in the same mode as I am, right? Now think about this. You're, you're already thinking ahead. It came to pass on the third day, Esther rises up and puts on her royal robes and stands in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house, and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the th gate of the house. It's an old English way of just saying what I just showed you. And so it was that when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. Did Jesus obtain favor in God's sight? Yeah. And the king held out his scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. What did Esther just do? She went from the inner chamber. She was accepted in the inner chamber. And then she walked through the door. Getting where I'm going with this? And into the same room as the king, which is the throne room. Do you guys see where I'm going with this? Can you say 1844? Okay. All right. Then the king said unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be given unto thee unto half the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day to a what? To a what? Banquet. What's another word for a banquet? Banquet. Unbelievable. Are you telling me that just as Christ, after he rose from the dead, went into the inner courts and then went into the most holy place and the investigative judgment began, that here we're seeing exactly the same thing? This is a doctrine that has been around for less than 200 years, correct? 1844. And yet, it's here in the book of Esther 2,500 years ago. Only Esther, because of her royalty, might stand in the inner court and then the presence of the king and live. But she could die if he did not find favor with her. Only Jesus, because of his divinity, might stand in the holy and most holy place and in the presence of God and live because he could die if there was sin found in him. Esther was absent from the king for 30 days prior to her ministry, but was given encouragement from Mordecai to embark on her mission. Jesus was absent from his father for 30 years prior to his ministry, but was given encouragement from the Holy Spirit to embark on his mission. Esther asked all the Jews in Shushan to fast and pray for her as she struggled with her decision to potentially sacrifice her life for her people. It could be in vain. Jesus asked his disciples to pray and fast for him as he struggled with his decision to sacrifice his life for his people. It could be in vain. Esther submitted to the will of Mordecai and resigned to die if it was necessary on Nisan 14 and fasted and prayed on Nisan 14, 15, and 16. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father and resigned to die as was necessary on Nisan 14 and rested in the tomb on Nisan 14, 15, and 16. On Nisan 16, Esther put on her royal apparel and rose up and went into the inner chamber of the king's palace, was accepted and entered into the throne room. On Nisan 16, Jesus put on his royal apparel and rose up and went into the heaven of the inner chamber and was accepted in God's presence and entered the most holy place. Esther then entered the king's throne room to plead on behalf of her people against the law that could not be changed. 
She had one request. Jesus entered the most holy place on October 22, 1844, again in the presence of God, and the investigative judgment began, pleading on behalf of his people against the law that could not be changed. Banquet equals investigative judgment. Where do we get the 2300-day prophecy from? Daniel chapter. All of this is happening where? Where's this happening? Shushan Palace. In the very heart of the Shushan Palace. The 2300-day prophecy was given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. Where was Daniel when he received the prophecy of the 2300 days? He was in the very same place. He was in the Shushan Palace. There's a few people up here getting excited. We'll get excited together. Okay, all right. What is the essence of the investigative judgment? It is simply God is in heaven. He doesn't sleep. He opens the books. He sees whose name is written in there. If his name is written in there and he hasn't been rewarded, he takes the robe of righteousness and puts it on that person. Isn't that the investigative judgment? That's interesting. How many phases of the investigative judgment are there? There's the, invest, there's the judgment of the righteous dead, and then it moves on to the judgment of the righteous. So it's one judgment, but there's two phases. If I were Esther, would I have just gone to the king and said, look, there's a guy named Haman. He's trying to kill my people. Take care of him. But this is not a story about that. It's a story about what? The great controversy. Here's a picture of what it looked like. Esther's coming in. She, the guy's saying, hold on right there. We've got to get approval. Otherwise, you're going to meet my friend, the, the, the tip of the spare. And this is where, this is where it just, it's unbelievable. Outer court, inner court, most holy place. Esther moving into the inner court, pleading on behalf. Christ on the cross, holy place, intercessing. I mean, it's amazing. Jesus refused to receive the homage of his people until he had the assurance that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. He ascended to the heavenly courts and from God himself heard that the assurance of his atonement for the sins of men had been ample, that through his blood all might gain eternal life. The Father ratified the covenant made with Christ that he would receive repentant and obedient men and would love them even as he loves his own son. Desire of Ages, page 790. Here's an actual satellite Recording, not recording, but picture of this te Temple of Shushan. Inner court, or most holy place, I, sh I shouldn't say most holy place. <laughs> Throne room, inner court, outer court. We already talked about that. Okay. This is where we're going to blow, it's going to blow you away. Because as we're going, and we're, we're, we're running out of time here, but the Spirit's moving me. Is the Spirit moving you? Do you want me to keep going? Okay, as we're moving along in the story of Esther, what, what's going to happen eventually? We're already at 1844. What's going to happen? We're eventually going to get to today. And that's when it gets really, really, really interesting. Come to the 4 o'clock meeting, but let me just show you. <laughs> Come to the 4 o'clock. It's going to blow. Have you ever, I mean, here's a commercial for the 4 o'clock meeting. Have you ever wondered why a woman is what's regarded as a church in the Bible? Think about all of the attributes that God put into women, okay? <laughs> those very same, and th those attributes that are not in men, okay? So their ability to, the, the way that a Jewish wedding occurs, incredibly amazing. The fact that they can, that they have a monthly cycle, okay? This is all going to come up. The fact that they can get pregnant, the fact that they have labor pains. Are all these things that are used as analogies in the Bible? They all have meaning. Every single one of those things have a meaning. The fact that they can give birth to a first fruits. Okay, all of the story, I'm just telling you, I'll give you a little sneak preview. All of the stories in the Bible about women not being able to have children, that means something. It's put there for a reason. Remember the quotes that we had at the beginning of the class? The class, the sermon, <laughs> right? Every fact has its bearing. It all means something. And, I, I, and I'll just tell you, the, the, to me, this is coming out now, I believe, for a very specific purpose. 
And I believe the devil knows this, and that is why he is trying to tear down those differences. Because this is going to be so important. Come to the four o'clock meeting. But watch this. This is, this is where it gets amazing. Okay, I gotta, I gotta do this quickly. Adventist teaching and Esther. Here we go. So we know from Adventist teaching that in 1844, the first phase of the investigative judgment began with the judgment of the dead. Jesus enters the presence of the king, right? Esther entertains King and Haman. Nothing happens at that first banquet. Haman goes home. And he is on top of the world until he meets somebody called Mordecai who won't go down to him, right? So what happens? By the way, Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes. Now he's, by, he's back at the king's gate. I take that as 1863 with the institution of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now back at the king's gate, doing the king's business, right? Where did Boaz go to get married to Ruth? He had to go to the elders at the gate because they were doing the business of the king. Mordecai is back at the king's gate. We now, for the first time since the death of Christ, have the spirit of prophecy. Once again, we have a commandment keeping people on the planet, at least professing, right? 1863, Mordecai is now back at the gate. We now have the institution of that. Haman sees Mordecai at the king's gate. Who's Haman? Represents Babylon. Who's Mordecai now? Represents the Seventh-day Adventist church. And he's getting irritated because this guy's not bowing down to him. So what happens? His wife hatches him a plan and says, take him out. Build a gallows and we'll just take him out. Go ask permission from the king. A religious person is getting civil authority to take care of somebody who's not bowing down to them. Are you guys following me? Okay. 1888. What happened in 1888? Very big year in Adventist theology. Number one, A.T. Jones at the, in May goes to Congress to testi testify against a National Sunday Law instituted by Blair, who was a senator from New Hampshire, in the Subcommittee on Labor and Education in the U.S. Senate. Bef it never got out of committee, never even went to the floor of the U.S. Senate, okay? And what happens? Later that year, they have the Minneapolis General Conference in 1888. A.T. Jones and a physician from California, watch out for those, <laughs> Wagner goes to 1888, Minneapolis, and, inst and institutes what doctrine, not, not doctrine, but righteousness, righteousness, or justification by faith, which is the third angel's message. Okay, think about this now. I want you to put this all together, okay? Think about this and what's happening in Esther. The king goes home from the banquet. He can't sleep. He asks the chamberlain to bring the books to open them. And they start going through and they realize, by the way, who's the first names that came up in 1844 in the investigative judgment? Who are the first na names? Adam and Eve. And whose names come up? Bigthon and Teresh. Okay? And they say, well, look, Mordecai it was the one that saved the king's life. What have we done for him? Here's a guy who's done good. They open the books. He's done good. Nothing's been done for him. What happens? He gets the king's robe put on him. I mean, how much clearer can this be? This is the investigative judgment. Do you see this? Okay. But Haman is coming back. As this is all going on, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. Haman's coming back. By the way, what court does Haman appear in? He appears in Esther 6.4, where Esther went to the king in the inner court and then went into the throne room. Haman comes from the outer court. Revelation 11, verse 2. Don't measure the outer court. It's given unto the Gentiles. So Haman represents himself, Okay. Before Haman can get the words out of his mouth to the king, the king changes the subject. Before the Sunday law can get out of subcommittee, something else completely changes. And later that year, in 1888, we have righteousness by faith, which is represented by the robe of righteousness that is put on Mordecai. You see, you're already ahead of me. Exactly. By the way, Haman is deceived into thinking that all that glory is for him, right? Right? Ellen White has a vision in early writings where she sees in the holy place people going into the most holy and those that stay in the holy place 
Satan comes up in, into that area, and they are deceived into thinking that they're getting the spirit from Satan. This is exactly what happened to Haman. He is deceived into thinking that all of these riches and blessings from Mordecai are going to be for him. Yet he's the one that's got to lead Mordecai around the streets of Shushan. Do you guys get the first part of the banquet? By the way, is it two banquets or one banquet? Actually, it's one banquet, two nights. Two nights. It says that actually in Esther 7. So is there one judgment? Yes, but there's two phases. It's perfect. Now, am I correct in saying, let's check in with Ellen White. Let's check in with Ellen White. Am I correct in saying that Mordecai is the Seventh-day Adventist church and Haman is, is apostate Protestantism and that she wants to get rid of them by using a gallows which represents the Sunday law? Review and Herald, Return of the Exiles, 11. Quote, the Protestant world today see in the little company keeping the Sabbath a Mordecai in the gate. His character and conduct expressing reverence for the law of God are a constant rebuke to those who have cast off the fear of the Lord and are trampling upon his Sabbath. The unwelcome intruder must by some means be put out of the way. And what's the way that he's going to do it? The gallows. Guess what? The gallows makes three appearances in the story of Esther. This is the first. Do you think the other two have to do with the Sunday law? I'm telling you, four o'clock. <laughs> gallows, Sunday law. What happens next? I love this part. So Mordecai's in the king's robe. We've got to move. Um, so what is this? This is justification by faith. This is Minneapolis Convention, 1888. This is the third angel's message. How can I say that, right, that justification by faith is the third angel's message? I have it on good authority. Review and Herald, April 1st, 1890. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered... It is the third angel's message in verity. Can't get better than that. So here we are today. We are in between the banquets. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. We're in between nights of the single banquets. Now, Adventist theology teaches that at the Sunday law, you will have a shaking. There will, the, the full unrestrained falling of the latter rain will fall. And that is associated with the second angel's message, which says, fallen, fallen is Babylon because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The latter rain falls unrestrained and the sealing begins. And where does judgment begin? It begins in the house of the Lord, us. Watch what happens. Is it possible that all of this is incorporated at the second night of the banquets? She made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, Revelation 14, 6 to 8. How is this done? By forcing men to accept a spurious Sabbath. Okay? Not yet, however, can it be said that she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. She has not yet made all nations do this. Not until this condition shall be reached and the union of church with the world shall be fully accomplished throughout Christendom with the fall of Babylon be complete. The change is a progressive one and the perfect fulfillment of Revelation 14.8 is yet future. Haman is falling but has not yet fallen. How do I know that? If you go and read Esther, you'll see that when she comes back, she says, Haman, if Mordecai be of the Jews, if this man Mordecai be of the Jews, that before whom you have begun to fall, she actually says those words, you will not be able to stand. So we have it right there between the banquets. Haman's own wife is saying, you are beginning to fall against this man. And that is where we are today. So the question is, is, does Haman completely fall at the second phase of the banquet? He does. Esther says, this is the man that wants to kill my people. What happens? Think about the second angel's message. Four, what are the four words associated with the second angel's message? Okay. Fallen. Wine. Wrath. Fornication. All four words happen at the second banquet. She points out Esther points out Haman as the man. The king, it's a wine banquet. Mishta. The king leaves in wrath. Haman falls down. And if you actually read the words, it's a bed that she is sitting on. I don't know how they ate dinner back then, but there's a bed, okay? So Esther is on the bed. Haman falls down next to her on the bed. He is completely fallen. Okay? He's fallen. The king comes in, and he thinks that he's trying to fornicate. 
with Esther. And he says, will you do this in the king's own house? They take him out immediately, and guess what they do? They hang him on his own second phase. So in other words, let me interpret that for you. You can probably see it. At the very moment that Babylon declares the Sunday law, they have hung themselves theologically. They have hung themselves. Doesn't mean they lose power. When when it says Babylon has fallen, it's saying theologically this system of religion has no more in it. It's fallen. Get out of her before it falls. Okay? Do you see what I'm saying? All right. So after the first night of the banquet, the books are open. Big Than and Teresh names are brought up. Mordecai is rewarded. Haman is falling, but not yet completely fallen. After the second night of the banquet, Haman falls completely. Haman is hanged on his own gallows. Mordecai elevated to the highest level and countermands the death decree. The decree is sealed and non-Jews are converted to Jews. So I'm just going to speed up here because we're getting to the the end here. We are going over. And I have so much more to tell you. It's the best part. This is all foundational. Okay? All the stuff I've shown you is just foundational. The real meat is Esther chapter 9 when they're actually saved, because they're saved in a way that is just amazing. They're not saved in one day. They're saved over a three-day period. And that has so much meaning. You guys are just going to be blown away, okay? I was blown away. That's why I tell you, I'm, do you see how I say I'm, I'm like one of the lepers that has found a tent full of stuff, and I just I can't keep my mouth closed? So what happens? After this happens, we know that the ceiling occurs, right? The, the latter rain falls, and people are converted. What happens here? Well, interestingly, All of the house of Haman is given to Mordecai. Mordecai is given the ring. He has the power to make laws. Mordecai, who represents the Holy Spirit, is able to make a law that allows the people, the Jews, to stand against the old law. Holy Spirit comes in and allows us to stand. And and it's with help from, from Esther, who represents Christ as well. The number of times the word sealed is used in that paragraph. I mean, he takes the law and they sealed it and they did this and they sealed it again. I mean, I don't know how many times they could seal it, but the word seal is used there so many times that it makes me think of the sealing, right? And then finally, I love this text right here. Non-Jews are converted to Jews. Isn't that exactly what's going to happen? He becomes such a powerful figure. This is the most powerful that Mordecai has been in the entire story. He starts off at the gate He goes to ashes and sackcloth, goes back to the gate. He gets elevated on a horse, and now he is the second in command. He's the prime minister of Persia. That is the the relative height that we're going to see with the latter reign. So where are we now? Close of probation is coming. Little time of trouble, great time of trouble, second coming of Christ. We're sealed. The second night of the banquet, Mordecai and Esther write a new law allowing Jews to protect themselves, and it is sealed. That's in Esther 8.8 and Esther 8.10. Mordecai is elevated to a very high position. Gentiles become Jews. I mean, this is exactly what we know in Adventist eschatology. Jews live, attackers die. Okay. This is where I'm going to leave you, okay? Because this is where they're actually saved. And they're saved in different ways. There's the Jews in the provinces, and there's the Jews in Shushan, and they're completely treated differently. On the 13th day, when they're all supposed to be executed, the people in Shushan defend themselves. 500 people come up against them and attack them. All 500 die, and the 10 sons of Haman. In the provinces, they defend themselves. 75,000 attackers die. There's a lot of people out in the provinces. So great. This would be the story would end, right? Yay, and they all live happily ever after. But no. That's not the end of the story. And you guys should know by now that if there's something in the Bible, it's there for a reason, right? Okay, so this is obviously not the way it's going to happen. Esther goes to the king, and she has two requests. She should be happy. My work is done. Everybody survived. No, she has another request. She says, I want another day of fighting only in Shushan. Only in Shushan. Second, I want you to take the ten sons of Haman, they're dead, dead bodies, and hang them on the gallows. Okay? The next day. So that's what they do. They have another day of fighting, only in Shushan. 
300 people attack. All of them are repelled and killed. Nobody dies from the Jews' side. And Haman's 10 sons are hanged. In the provinces on the 14th, they're all resting. They're celebrating. And this is the day that the Jews celebrate Purim on, on the 14th of Adar. The next day, the 15th, now those in Shushan can rest. So why are they treated differently? What does the 500 mean? What does the 300 mean? What do the 10 sons of Haman mean? Why are they hung again on the gallows? Why does the gallows make a cameo appearance at the end? Every single one of these things have meaning, and it is absolutely amazing. The only way I can explain it is it's Bible Sudoku. <laughs> because there is stuff from all over the Bible that I, will sh- that I will show you how it fits in, that because this is there, that fits this way, and that fits this way. Okay? And it's also a map. It's kind of like the um, British Airways map of uh, flying to London. This is where I will leave you if you guys want to find out more. And I really want to tell you more. I'm just limited by time. If I wasn't limited by time, I would just keep going. But we have to stop, right? So um, I will leave it at that. Isn't our God a wonderful God that he put in from the very beginning the entire plan of salvation into a story that's 2,500 years old? In detail. I think we can have faith in him. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for opening up the word today and giving us really faith that you are in control, that you know the beginning from the end and that the light that you have shown us, you've known all along. Please give us the Holy Spirit so we can understand more and give us the tools that we can to dig and sink that shaft deeper into the Bible. In thy holy name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.